0: Good morning. Good morning, Matthew chapter 27, I mean Matthew chapter 21, not 27, we can do 27 I guess, but that would be keeping with what we're doing today. If you are a member or a visitor who's been visiting for a while, we are taking a break from our uh, study over elders, which we've been in for several weeks now, uh, in the book of Timothy. We've been making our way through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, But in honor of Palm Sunday uh, and the beginning of Holy Week this week, next week we will not be uh, in Timothy. Instead, we'll be studying today uh, the triumphant entry of Christ. And we'll take it from Matthew 21. I thought about going in Mark, but I was afraid of how some of our covenant members might respond if I asked you to turn to Mark again. Uh, so after spending 16 months in Mark, I thought some people might faint. So we'll do it in Matthew instead. But Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read 1 through 11. And the inspired word of God says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying say to the daughter of Zion behold your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a beast the burden The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd says, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Trying to set the scene here uh, is hard for us to picture. You may have been a part of a parade or some kind of an event where people were cheering. Maybe, as my family once did, we welcomed some soldiers home once uh, from the war and there's some celebratory uh, scene there. Uh, you may have watched stuff like that on Facebook. Uh, you may have uh, participated in a sports team uh, parade if they maybe won the Super Bowl or something like that. If you're a Dallas fan, it's been a long time since <laughs> you had that opportunity. Uh, but needless to say, uh, you may have some of your Frame of mind how this might have looked, um, but it would have been a spectacular scene. Uh, I'm of the opinion that very few movies have ever been released uh, regarding anything about Jesus that have done any justice to this scene at all. Uh, there would have been, by most historians' accounts, well over a million people gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, some have argued there might have been as many as two million people Um, And so Jesus, who had created quite a following, obviously, if you worked with us through the book of Mark, I told you that if we began in the book of Mark and you finished it out, you would completely understand why they crucified Jesus. Uh, But as you well know, Jesus had caused quite a stir among the religious leaders, and most recently he had healed or raised from the dead Lazarus, um, which had caused an even bigger stir among the religious leaders uh, who had not only at this time decided to kill Jesus, they would also decided to go ahead and kill Lazarus as well. Uh, they were just going to get rid of both of them. They just couldn't let that happen. And so by this time, Jesus has quite the following. Jesus had gone fairly quiet and done some private ministry with his own disciples. Uh, but now he was going to make a very public entrance and what he knew was the final week of his life on earth. As J.C. Ryle says, before the great sacrifice for the sin of the world was to be offered up, it was only right that every eye should be fixed on the victim. And so Jesus sends two of his disciples when he um, gets ready to go to town and says, go into town and you will find a donkey and a colt tied. Tell the owners that the Lord needs them. Now maybe he did this supernaturally knowing where they were, um, that's not at all um, out of the realm of possibility, or uh, and very likely he may have already made these arrangements with somebody in town, and that was their cue, They knew that the Lord needed them, and they bring these two animals back to him, and this is a fulfillment of what we see in the prophet Zechariah, that he said in verse, or chapter 9, verse 9, and will I read it to you again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They bring these animals back and they set their garments on these animals and Jesus sets upon them and you would, uh, be rather shocked to find out the controversy of that phrase how people are trying to a couple of the Gospels only mention one animal and they're probably oh my gosh this is this means the Bible is not true, and there's all kinds of debates about that. It is quite funny to see some of these debates, they do, about this one particular passage. Obviously, the fact that uh, some of the other gospel writers, if it's two animals, does not mean there's not two animals. Matthew says there are two, and there's actually some people who think Jesus stood upon these two animals and rode in. That's not a picture at all. Um, I think he set on the garments is what he means. So he set on one animal, and they may have used the other one. Um uh, for carrying stuff. He may have ridden one and then switched to other. There's all kinds of debates, but here, here's what I know. He, he rode these animals in a fulfillment of uh, what prophet uh, Zechariah would say. And then in verse 8 we find that the people, there's a crowd of people following Jesus, and there's a crowd already in Jerusalem watching this happen, and they began to lay their coats or their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus as he rides into town, and along with cutting branches from trees and laying them, spreading them on the road. We know the palm branches because the Gospel of John in chapter 12 tells us that, and that's why we have uh, Palm Sunday. And so if you can, once again, just picture this scene is Jesus, the prophet, as some would say, as you hear them say at the end of this passage we read, as others would say, the Messiah, the King of Kings, as he begins to ride in the town on a donkey. Let's just be honest. If you're going to make an entrance on an animal... I'm thinking tiger, lion. I mean, there are a lot of images that come to my mind. How many of you say we just went to the zoo last week or two weeks ago with my family for spring break, went to the Fort Worth Zoo, and we saw a lion? Uh, he wouldn't even get up off the ground. He just laid there with his feet up in the air. And he was still a massive animal. I was scared. He was just laying there. We saw all kinds of tigers and anything else. Um, there were no donkeys that I was aware of that was displayed. They didn't have a, a donkey exhibit. Those are not real popular for people to go to. Um, this is not what you would picture a king riding the pond, but it is a fulfillment of the prophet. Behold, your king has come to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a beast of burden. So you can just see this scene. Most historians argue that with the at least a million people there, with the crowds that have been following Jesus, Jesus was coming to make his entrance. Thousands of people were beginning to hear this, and they think that there might have been tens of thousands of people at this scene. As Jesus rode in with his own crowd, and they began to shout as they laid their cloaks down and laid their palm tree branches down in honor and respect to the Messiah. And they would shout, which we have a hard time doing that in the church, but they would say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And it would have been louder than that. Now, Hosanna is often thought, that word is often thought as a declaration of praise, and, and it is, and eventually becomes that for us as believers. I guess you could say it's similar to Hallelujah, but it's actually, actually, it's a plea for salvation. Our word Hosanna comes from a Hebrew phrase, and that Hebrew phrase is only found in one place in the entire Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 118 25 through 26. And the Hebrew word there says, means, save us, we pray, O Lord. Literally, it means, I beg you to save. Or you could translate it, please deliver us, or save us, please. It is a cry from a people who need help from God for God to help them. It is a phrase of urgency. And you could also translate it like this, save us now. That's what they are shouting. And this is an important word for the people to use here. In fact, it would eventually lead the Pharisees and the religious leaders to go up to Jesus and say, hey, you need to tell them to stop saying that. And the reason they were upset is they are quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. And it is one of the six psalms most frequently quoted in the New Testament that is applied to Jesus. So this is a big deal that the people are shouting this towards Jesus. They are proclaiming him in this scene. They are shouting in front of all these people, here is the Messiah. Now, for some of us, we have a hard time completely understanding this. But the nation of Israel had been told that there would be a Messiah who would come and rescue them. They knew that. They were taught that. And now they thought, here he is. You can almost see the excitement of the people. As some people who may not even have been aware of it might have been told who, what's going on? The Messiah's here. Huh? Hey, the Messiah's here. People like, You're kidding me. He's here. And there would have been a, just a crush of a crowd that would have gathered. Singing and shouting. No doubt many had heard of all the miracles and had heard about Leslie's being raised from the dead, and maybe, maybe some of them recognized the fact that Jesus is on a donkey and that fulfills what the prophet said, and the excitement began to build that the Messiah is here. But this story doesn't end like the crowd thought it would. We know the ending, but nobody in this scene knows the ending. Not even the disciples of Jesus completely had wrapped their mind around Jesus dying. He had told them that as plainly as he could, but they did not completely understand it, much less the crowd that was singing and shouting Hosanna. Jesus knew. Probably, no doubt. We know from scripture in a somber way that though they were shouting his praises, their expectations of what he was going to do would not be met. And their disappointment would soon be evident. In fact, some of these very people more than likely who shouted Hosanna would soon shout crucify. The entire Bible. The entire Bible. The entire Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus. Yes. Yes. And it all points to this final week. Where Jesus and Satan had their Genesis three verse fifteen meeting. You, you know that, right? That This is where this is all happening. Now, everything that started in Genesis 3 is pointing to this moment. It's all occurring. God said it would happen. And in Genesis 3.15, I will put in enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is that week. The gospel in Genesis chapter 3 proclaimed that there would be a Messiah. He would come. The enemy would bruise his heel. But he would crush his head. And this is the week where Satan will strike first. He will have Jesus crucified. But it will not be the final blow. Good Friday is on the horizon, as S.M. Lockridge would say, the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, in his infamous Easter meditation. It's Friday, but Sunday comes. (laughs) And if you have not heard that, you should listen to it. It is good. And we know that, and we will be reminded of that again this Sunday. But at this moment, in this passage... Their king, this Messiah, who the crowd is shouting Hosanna to, the one who they believe is there to rescue them, and he was, will soon be a bloody pile of flesh, beaten so badly that he will be unrecognizable. A beating so severe that someone else will have to carry the cross that the Romans would crucify him on with the full approval of the Jewish religious leaders and with Pilate nailing a sign that says, King of the Jews. This is not how this crowd saw this play out. They thought they were being rescued. Save us, save us now, O Lord. Save us. But no doubt had Jesus asked them, from what? Mm -hmm. Save you from what? Mm -hmm. They would have said, well, well Rome, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what you're here for, right? I mean, you're here to set your kingdom up, right? I mean, mean, we've been occupied by Rome, and and Israel needs to be restored to its its prominence. And and you're here. You're here to to defeat Rome. They have oppressed us. They have ruined us. We have lost our national identity. Oh, you're going to come in and you're going to overthrow them, I admit. The donkey, I get it. It's a fulfillment. I mean, not exactly what we were kind of thinking of, but I get it. You must have something. you got a whole bunch of people with you. I don't know what you're going to overthrow them with. I don't see any weapons. But somehow you're here and you're going to deliver us and you're going to set up your kingdom. I mean, we need a king. We need a king, a king like King David, a mighty warrior. And you are him. You are our Messiah, our promised king. And all those victories over the enemies of Israel that the kings who were godly had experienced were just foreshadowing of the one true king's utter destruction of the greatest enemy of Israel, ever and your greatest enemy today and it was not Rome the greatest enemy is sin sin the sinful nature that resides in you we say it every week at the close of every service nobody had to teach you how to sin you sin naturally naturally And you are good at it. Because when we were born into this world, you have a master. And that master that you are a slave to is sin. It is your ultimate enemy. The people shouting Hosanna thought their enemy was who was occupying them. They thought the enemy was outside. But Jesus knew the enemy is inside. And that's what you need deliverance from. And it would make Jesus weep. He weeps over Jerusalem in Luke 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and he saw the city, the creator of the universe, God with flesh on, weeps over the city. God weeps, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this, th- that on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus had come and they had rejected him. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. The people, the people had missed it. All of Israel's godly king stories of defeating Israel enemies, the people wanted that kind of king to arrive and take his rightful throne, set it up right there. But that is not how Jesus would accomplish his kingdom. They didn't realize that the stories like David and Goliath are not stories about you defeating your obstacles or your overcoming your challenges or the difficulties that you face in life, all of those stories of kings and prophets and priests who stood firm defeating the Lord's enemies were all pointing to this moment right. where the king of kings would defeat the greatest enemy ever. Amen. Right here. And When the perfect king, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, who was the perfect spotless lamb of God God with flesh shown, would defeat her only true enemy. When he would arrive not acting like a king like the people had anticipated. No, this carpenter, this unremarkable looking man, would be the one to put an end to the power of sin in the strangest of ways. He would die. He would die. He would be crucified after being brutally beaten and the people who shouted, Hosanna, the King is here, our Savior is here, the Messiah is here. And how quiet. Because He is dead. And yet the sin that reigns and ravages the souls. Of all the lost sheep who have gone astray would be accomplished and defeated in the death of Christ. The reasons the crowds were disappointed in the end is they didn't understand what they needed saving from. They needed saving from themselves. They all thought Rome was the problem. And if they could just get rid of Rome, everything would be made right again. But the problem lies in each one of us. And we're all, we're all not much different. Modern psychology all tells us that the reason we are like we are is because of things that have happened to us. But we hear, if those things didn't happen to us, that everything would be good. And I'm here to tell you, you will and would destroy yourself if left to yourself. It's true. We see it time and time again. You can shield a kid away from every sin known to man, and then you release them at 30. And you know what they will do? Sin! It's true. Because the enemy resides inside. Your greatest problem, although there are things that happen to us that affect us, I get that, but your greatest problem is that you have a sin nature and it wants to destroy you. Romans 3 23 said, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the people here had failed to see that reality and our own failure. Too often we forget that truth. And yet, even while we were sinning, even while we are in opposition to the King of Kings, God loved us so much that he sent Christ to take our punishment before us. Even when we don't understand. Even the people who shouted, crucify. Even the disillusioned disciples who would find themselves hiding. Peter, who would deny Christ. And the rest of the disciples who would flee, Jesus, even in that rebellion, at that very moment, was saying, I'm going to pay for that sin because I love you. So that Palm Sunday begins the final week of our redemption. Jesus came to die in the power of sin to be a master over those who would believe would die with him. Your greatest struggle this morning is not your finances. Your greatest problem is not your relationships or your past. It's not your spouse. No one left. They were fearful. It's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your job or lack of a job or whatever else you have on your list. Your greatest Struggle is your sinful nature. Romans 6, Paul says it this way, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, speaking to believers, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the truth. If you don't understand that you need saving, then you will never recognize a Savior. And if you misunderstand what you need saving from, You'll miss the Savior even when he rides by. The Jews, this crowd in Matthew 21, was interested in political salvation. Boy, could we stay there a little while. (laughs) But we won't. But the Jews were interested in political salvation when they needed spiritual salvation. So no matter matter what sin entangles you today, it still entangles you. No matter what addiction has mastered you, no matter what sinful darkness is in your past, or what secret you are hiding, what secret sin is destroying you, understand this. There is a Savior who can rescue you from your sin. Amen. Years ago, Keith Wilkerson told me a story that someone told him that Christianity is nothing but a crutch. He said he responded that a crutch isn't a bad thing for someone who's lame. Let me tell you, we need a Savior. And you would say, well, I'm a believer. What does this have to do with me? I get it. I've I've come to know Christ. Christ. Hosanna takes on a little different meaning for believers. Yes. It takes on this meaning. Our Savior is here. Yes. He's here. He has redeemed me. He is my Messiah. It is a shout of praise in that sense. But if you're here today, you have never come to Christ I want you to understand that you have been mastered. You might say, I want to run my life the way I want to run my life. i got news for you. You're not running your life the way you want to run your life. You're running your life the way your sinful nature wants to run your life. And you are not in control. Your sinful nature is. And I'm here to tell you, you have the chance to be made new. To be, to have your heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. To become a new creature. That the old has gone and the new has come. And you, you in Christ have the ability to walk away from being a slave to sin. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, you have the ability to become slaves of righteousness. Why don't you do things that are godly? I just can't help it. You remember how you couldn't help doing sin? Now you can't help doing things that honor God. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit has controlled you. You say, well, I still sin. Yes, you do. But now you know it. Now when you do those things, there's a voice that says, doesn't say you're pathetic and worthless. That's the enemy. He still likes to come in. That says, This is not what I have. This is not what I've redeemed you for. There is something better than what you've just done. You are no longer slaves of sin, but slaves to righteousness. So we do it every week. Here's the gospel presentation. You are born into sin. I hope you never grow tired of this. Because you need to be reminded you ever noticed how they constantly, Paul constantly reminds the people of the gospel? That's because we need to be reminded of the gospel. Amen. We were born into sin. No one had to teach us how to sin. We sinned naturally and we sinned well. And even while we were sinning, God looked at you. In your sin, I don't care what it was. I don't care what you were doing. God looked at you and said, I want him, I want her to be adopted into my family. But a blood, blood had to be spilled because a sacrifice had to be made. So God said, Jesus, God was flesh-owned, to take your punishment that you deserved by going to the cross. Second Corinthians 5:18 through 21 gives us a great picture of this. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, God says it this way: all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. No longer, not counting their trespasses against him. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And listen, we and me today, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him believers listen this is you so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God the great exchange on the cross for those who believe you exchange your sin and you get Christ's righteousness and you are made new and that opportunity is available to anyone in here who has never become a believer and you say, say, oh, I'll do that. Do I need to repeat a prayer? Do I need to say a certain set of magic words? Is there something magical about coming and grabbing your hand? There is not. How would I become a believer? Normally I say, repent and believe. And that's true. I also think you could cry, Hosanna. Hosanna. God, save me now joy for us to shout those words as Keith comes to lead us in a time of worship I hope the words Hosanna will never mean the same to you again but that Hosanna will be the cry of a believer who recognizes their salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone and so that when we sing the words Hosanna Hosanna in the highest it would mean so much to believers. I hope and I pray as God continues to mold our church that somebody would come in the next time we sing that song and they'd say, I don't know much about that Hosanna, but those people sure are as excited about saying that word. It's great meaning for us. Let's pray. God, you are good. We proclaim Hosanna. Thank you for Christ. I thank you for the cross. Thank you, you did not leave it up to us to earn our salvation, God, because we would have never earned it. God, left to ourselves, we would have destroyed ourselves. So, Lord God, I just thank you. I thank you for Christ. And I pray, God, that I will be reminded constantly of the good news of the gospel of what it means to proclaim Hosanna. God, I pray our people would never grow tired of hearing the gospel. That we were unable to save ourselves, God. But we found in Christ our Savior. God, we thank you for that. You've been so good to us. God, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you, that your Holy Spirit would take the veil off their eyes and they would see their sin for the hideous thing that it is. But they would look up and see Christ and proclaim Hosanna, and that you would rescue them and change them forever, Lord, I pray. We love you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. The elders are always here. We always stay behind to talk, to counseling anybody who needs to talk. If you would say, well, I just want to repent and believe. I just want to cry hosanna and come to know Christ. and If I do that, how will I know that I am a believer? Because you will never be the same again. That's how you'll know. And never be the same again. Once a slave to sin, In Christ a slave to righteousness. That means your life will be changed. Let's worship the Lord together.